Good morning. I'm very thankful for you to be with us, whether online or in person, here as we worship together in the word of the Lord together. Just thinking this morning about the joy and the blessing of us not only worshiping together, but as we worship together, we worship together as family. And as we worship together as family, we are indeed the family of God. Um, as we continue through this season of Lent, we are talking about this idea of holding things in tension. Again, we're understanding tension not simply as things that butt heads or things that pull us apart, but, but two things we're holding together as one. So one of the ways we're going through Lent is recognizing that it's about a walk, which means that it's intentional, it's a step-by-step -step journey that, that God is with us. But as we go on this step-by-step -step walk with God, it's also good for us to look at the big picture, right? The whole journey of not just the season we're in, but what God is doing to us and in us and through us. So then Lent is this invitation as you walk, as you look at the big picture journey, to, to hold on to God and to also, you know, surrender because we're also asking God to keep holding on to us. And we do this because there's, there's a different levels of Lent. We shared this for the last couple of weeks, right? Lent is about the wilderness. It's about times of prayer and self-denial and repentance and reconciliation. And it's, it's akin to going back to Jesus before ministry, spending that time in the wilderness with God. And, and this was a time that the Holy Spirit filled them up. And it was a time where Jesus was filled up to go out into the world. So before we go into the season of, of, of Good Friday and Holy Week and Resurrection Sunday, we, we go through the season of wilderness calling us to be filled up by the Spirit. But then Lent also, because we we celebrate Holy Week and Monday, Thursday and Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. It's also about the cross and it's about Jesus's march towards Calvary. I love in the scriptures the time and time again when it talks about Jesus setting his face towards Jerusalem. When I was a kid, I hated tests, right? Like I never set my face towards the test. If I knew the test was coming, I ran away from the test, right? But our Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem. He sets his face towards the ultimate test, the ultimate sacrifice. So as we go through Lent, we've been talking about about prayer and self-denial and repentance to this morning. Next week, we'll talk about reconciliation. But as we march in the season of Lent, that the goal we're kind of trying to hold on to, especially this morning, is what is the purpose of this march? What is the, the glory that Jesus gives us? Or what, what, what does it mean to take up our cross and follow him? This morning, we're going to be in Psalm 51, and, and this is one of maybe the most personal psalm, right? I used to think Psalm 23 was a personal psalm because David uses a lot of personal pronouns, right? When he's talking about who God is. But in Psalm 51, we see what worship looks like. We see what brokenness looks like. We see what it means to fail God, but God to not fail us. We see what faithfulness looks like. We see how good our God is, and we see what redemption looks like. And this morning, as we talk about repentance, we want to look at it not only as acknowledging sin, asking forgiveness of sin, but we want to hold on to this idea that when we truly repent, we return back to God. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 51. Um, I believe we'll try to have it up here. We did not put it in the program, so we're loading that up. So you're just going to have to trust me it's there. Or next time, bring your Bible. There you go. We're on track. We're good. Psalm 51, starting at verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Another translation says, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash away all my iniquity and guilt. Cleanse and purify me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and rebellion, and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired honesty and faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse and purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out and remove the stain of all my iniquity and guilt. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a loyal and steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast or banish me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me and to obey you. Then I will teach transgressions, uh, then I will teach transgressors and rebels your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O oh God. You who are God my Savior and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. 
Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite, repentant heart. You, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous and burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered up on your altar. Let's pray together. Our God of mercy and grace, we thank you this morning that we can come to you. That no matter where we are, you promise us your presence. Through the power of the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us, through the witness and fellowship of saints all around us, through even your scripture, through, through us thinking back and remembering all the ways you've been there for us. God, we thank you that we can rely on your mercy and grace. Lord Jesus our Christ, we thank you that you set your face towards the test of Calvary's tree, that you wanted not your will ultimately, but the Father's will to be done. And we thank you that because of your sacrifice, we can know a little bit what it costs to redeem us, what it costs to save us, what it costs to deliver us, what it costs to set us free. And Holy Spirit, we thank you this morning that you desire to dwell within us, that even when we fall short, you're with us. Even when we don't have the words to muster up the courage, you're with us. That when we acknowledge our sin, you purify us and cleanse us and make us clean before our God and Father. So Holy Spirit, we ask for your presence in this room. We ask for your presence as we walk through this Psalm 51, this song of David, this prayer of old that has now become the prayer of us too. We thank you so much, Lord Jesus, for your love for us. We thank you so much, our Father, for your mercy and compassion and grace. And we thank you so much, Holy Spirit, for holding on to us as we try to hold on to you. In the Lord's holy and precious name we pray. Amen. As we're going through the Psalms, we say that the Psalms draw us to Jesus. Part of the reason is because as these songwriters piece together these songs and prayers, the Spirit was in them and walking, working through them. So we also have pointed out how these are words that Jesus sung as a child in the temple, but Esau also, Esau, but also these are words that Jesus said. We see him singing Psalms on the cross. We see him singing Psalms as he preaches. We see him singing Psalms throughout his ministry. But the thing about the Psalms is that they're not just Psalms about Jesus or infused with Jesus, is that they're really songs and poems about Jesus and about God. And that is why the Psalms draw us to God, because they're possible that these songs of old have become our songs and prayers too. But this morning, we're going to add a little layer on to what the Psalms are and to recognize that the Psalms are not just, again, songs that can become our own or songs that Jesus sung. But these Psalms can be a spiritual and emotional home for us, meaning that no matter what we're going through, we can find a home in the Psalms. G. Campbell Morgan, who's a British pastor, once said this, the book of Psalms is the book in which the emotions of the human soul find expression. Whatever your mood, and I suppose you have changing moods as well as I do, he's telling about himself, I can find you a psalm that will help express it. Are you glad? I can find you a psalm that you can sing. Are you sad? I can find you a psalm that will suit that occasion. The psalms range over the whole gamut of human emotions. They were all written for us in the consciousness of and in the sense of the presence of God. In every one of these psalms, from the first to the last, Whatever the particular tone, whether major or minor, the singer is conscious of God. That's what gives peculiar character to the book of Psalms. This is why some people read a psalm a day. This is why saints and, and, and Christians and believers have sung these songs for hundreds and thousands of years. Because they can be a spiritual and emotional home because whatever you're going through, you can find a psalm to match that mood. John Calvin kind of summed up all of what G. Campbell Morgan like this. He says, when you look at the Psalms, think of it as an anatomy of all parts of the soul. An anatomy of all parts of the soul. And so when we get to Psalm 51, we get to not only talk about repentance, but we get to see David in arguably his most worshipful pose. We get to see David in inarguably, I would say, his lowest point. We get to see David calling out to God for repentance, but like all good believers, modeling God's repentance for us. And we see David who's actually teaching us how to repent. 
Now, the background of Psalm 51 is 2 Samuel 11 and 12. A couple years ago, we did a series on David. There's two really good sermons that are really, really good on, on, on what happened with Bathsheba and what happened with Nathan. But I'm just going to kind of rush through it a little bit, not because we're not doing it justice, but because our focus is going to be on Psalm 51. If you want those sermons, go on our website or email me. I'd love to send them to you. We'll unpack it in, in further detail. But there are four things I think if you, or if you just want to go home and read them, it's in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. But it's four things I think is important to remember about this entire episode with David, Bathsheba, and Nathan. The first one is that David sinned against God. And you see David saying it here in the psalm. And obviously, if you read through 2 Samuel 11 and 12, you'll see how David also sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah and Israel and his family and all of that, right? But what David posits us in the psalm is for us to recognize that when we sin, it doesn't mean that we don't harm others. It doesn't mean that there's no consequences for our behaviors and there's consequences for David's sin. But what David kind of reminds us is that ultimately we need to recognize that we not only hurt the people around us, that we not only hurt ourselves, that we not only hurt uh, the whatever position or, or authority that God has given us, but that we sin and rebel against God. And God, who's the ultimate judge, God who sees everything and holds everything, God who's even with us as we sin, is the one we rebel against. And it's important that as we talk about David's sin, we recognize his abuse of power, but we also recognize his abuse of privilege. And this should challenge all of us to, to see how we have our privileges and how we're using it to either help people or harm people. If you go back in the story of David, you see so many steps in the wrong direction, right? The story begins with, this was a time when kings go to war. Now, we're pacifists and Anabaptists. We don't like war. But back in the Old Testament, they liked war a little. And when spring would come, they'd be like, guess what time it is? It's April, time for war. And that's what they would do. And David didn't go because he was like, you know, I'm about 50. My fighting days are over. The kingdom's established. Y'all go do something. But it was a step in the wrong direction. And we see when David first spots Bathsheba, it wasn't one of those that like you're just, you know, like walking through. It's like, oh, she's pretty. No, no. He stopped and he gawked at her. And we see that David looks at Bathsheba at night, which was a time when women would go out because of the cool of the desert. Women would go out at night to, to, to shower and bathe. Well, not shower, but bathe. And he stops and he stares at her. And then you go through these series of just bad steps of ignoring who she was, of ignoring her marriage, of ignoring his father and husband, who were literally people who fought by his side, of, of ignoring the fact that he knew she was married, of using his power and privilege to put her in an untenable situation, of sinning against her, and then of trying to cover it up by sending for Uriah not once or not twice and say, I know the battle's hot, but don't handle it. Just go spend the night with your wife. And Uriah is so faithful. And I love this because a lot of times we think about the Old Testament, we think about the Israelites as this like uniform people of Jews, right? But there's a reason he's called Uriah the Hittite. And I think part of that reason is for God to remind us that his people have always been multicultural. That his people have never been one nation and one people. It's been everyone who believes. And the, 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 the irony or, or even the, 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 the tragedy of Uriah is that he has more faith in the God of David and of David than David shows in this episode. And David ultimately sends Uriah to death and then brings Bathsheba and marries her and thinks it's all handled and good. And the second part is that when we recognize that David harms Bathsheba by using his power and privilege to literally force himself upon her, even though he knew it was wrong, is we know that David harmed Uriah, who believed in the God of David and the God of Israel and was willing to die and did die for David. And we acknowledge that David then sins against Israel because as the king, he wasn't just a political ruler. Because remember, God wanted the king to represent as a pastor, as a prophet, as a shepherd before the people. And ultimately, David's sin leads to a splitting of Israel. And David's sin leads to not only the loss of the son, the first child of Bathsheba, but his sons fighting against each other and Israel being ripped apart. And we see his family destroyed by his sin. But when we get to Psalm 51, and even as we go through 2 Samuel 11 and 12, we see that, yes, sometimes it takes some help of the community around us, right? Sometimes it takes a little bit of Nathan. When David finally sees his sin, 
he repents and he models prayer and repentance for us. But before we get to that, I think it's also important for us to acknowledge that David worshiped God. If you remember the end of this story, Psalm 51's nice and all, because like, yeah, that's what repentance looks like. But the end of this story was more tragedy and consequences for David's sin. The child of Bathsheba dies. David spends days praying, praying to God to please spare the child and to, 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 to let the punishment fall upon him. Yet when the child dies, David finally acknowledges not only his sin, but he acknowledges that God, I know you didn't hear me, but I know there's consequences for my sin and I'm still gonna trust you. And I think about how so many of us when life happens, that is not our reaction to God. And I'm not saying you don't have space to be angry with God, just read the Psalms, there's plenty of space to be angry with God. But I think this is what's aspirational. One of the things that's aspirational about David is that he says, God, no matter what happens, I'm going to trust you. That's faith. God, no matter what I've done, I'm going to trust that you forgive me. And David's reaction after mourning for his baby is to go to the temple to praise his God. And I don't know at what point in the story that he writes Psalm 51. But I know that we as believers are blessed that we have this psalm. David, in worshiping with God, begins the psalm in verse 1, calling and returning to God for mercy. Have mercy on me, O Lord. Have mercy on me, O Lord. Have mercy on me, O Lord. And I think why this is important isn't just because the rest of the psalm flows out of it. That's a good reason. But I think why this is important is it reminds us that what we think about God, that our vision and understanding of God will sometimes determine our relationship with God. I want you to sit with that for a second. What we think about God, what we believe about God, will sometimes determine our relationship with God. David knew God was complex. In Psalm 23, David looks at not only how God has worked in and through him, but he looks at different things that he is and realizes that, wow, God is better than this, right? Like, I'm a shepherd, but oh my goodness, God is my shepherd who provides and protects me. I'm a king, but oh my goodness, God is the ultimate king who provides glory for all his servants, who watches and protects us. Oh, I'm a warrior, but God's a warrior, except I seek to kill and destroy. But God is a warrior who will chase me down until I'm captured and enraptured with his love. So David knew that God was complex. But what's interesting, it's in the heart of his sin, in the, 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 the lowest of his lows, in this moment of ultimate brokenness, you see this in the life of David. He always, always, always is willing to throw himself back into the arms of God. David is always willing to throw himself back in the arms of God. Why? Because he knew his God was loving and merciful and good. He knew that his God was faithful. He knew that his God would be there for him to redeem him. David trusted God fully, and that's why he's able to throw himself in the arms of God. So I think the work for all of us is to think about how we think about God. It's to really, really focus on who we think God is. And the frightening thing for those of us in the room who are parents, or all of us in the rooms who, who have an ability to impact people around us, especially people who are newer to the faith or, or questioning the faith or coming into the faith, or just everybody else, is that sometimes we help form the picture of God for others. One of the most terrifying thing of me being a father is, thank you, Michael Gurry, a New York Times bestseller, is recognizing that as a father, my relationship with my daughters might just determine most of their relationship with every other man they will ever interact with. It's frightening and it's terrifying, but it also makes you a prayer warrior. Because David shows us here that how we think about God matters. 
And so for some of us, we don't know this God of deep compassion and mercy because we see him as a God who's just up there somewhere. And for some of us, we don't know this God that we can fully trust because we've never seen him fully enter into our lives. We've never surrendered fully to him. We can't go to God and tell him everything because we have not beat the path towards God. I love Jehoshaphat when he goes to pray and says, Lord, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. He, the, 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 the word in the Hebrew says he beats a path to the temple. How many of us can characterize our faith and our relationship with God as I beat a path? The idea here is like when you have like um, the trail to go up and down the hill or whatever, right? But then there's always the side trails that the kids take and they just beat a path and they make a new path. The idea here was that the familiar beaten path was what Jehoshaphat had to God. So the question for us becomes, have we beat a path towards God? Do we have a habit of, of being in relationship with God so much so that, that it's familiar, that it's safe, that it's home? Because if you don't have this understanding of God, if you don't fully trust God, if you're not in the habit of surrendering to God, it'll be hard to truly trust the redemption and salvation and deliverance of God. Because if you just think God is judgmental, you're never going to come to him or truly believe he forgives you. If you just think God is cold, you will never believe that God is here for you. If you think that God just wants to strike you down and strike you down and hurt you and harm you, you will never believe in the freedom that God brings. And I think we have to take a little bit of time and acknowledge that for some of us, we've had really bad pictures of God. I know people who have a hard time saying God is their father because they've had horrible fathers who've abandoned and left them behind. I know people who have a hard time believing that God is love because we as Christians have not been loving to them. How we see God matters. How we represent God matters too. So David is able to say, have mercy on me, because how he sees God is the one whose love is unfailing, is the one who gives him hesed, is the one who gives him agape, is the one who works together for his good, is the one who not only forgives and sets him free, but is the one who's always on his side, is the one who doesn't just forgive because that's what God does, but is the one who takes compassion that's from deep within and pours it out on him. He trusts God because God can blot out and erase all his sins. He trusts God because God is the one that can wash and clean and purify him. To the people of David in the Old Testament, this wasn't just a ritual thing, right? Like David wasn't saying, I'm going to get the bath water together and God's going to wash me ceremonially. And there's some people who make the, the kind of jump to, to baptism. But it's kind of the same thing. That's not what David is talking about here. The Old Testament's uh, uh, a concept of purity and washing yourself clean was saying that if my heart, which is, again, the essence of who I am, right? My hopes, my dreams, my gifts, my skills, my abilities, my mind, my will. For my heart to be clean, it has to be oriented towards God. David isn't talking about a physical washing of his body, but a washing of his mind, of his hopes, of his dreams, of all that he is, of saying, God, when I sinned against you, I was oriented towards myself. But wash me clean. Turn my focus. Put my face on you so I can be oriented towards you. And the idea of a, of a cleansed a heart and mind was not only oriented towards God, but it was fixed and it was steadied and it was focused on God, which gives us a new understanding of sin. That is not only falling short or missing the mark or, or sinning against God, but it's this idea where our orientation, our mind, our will, our thinking is on us and ourselves instead of our God. So David says, have mercy on me because I know your love and mercy is unfailing. Have mercy on me because I know your compassion is deeper than I can imagine, deeper than any ocean I've ever seen. Have mercy on me because I know you can erase my sin. Have mercy on me because I know you can turn my face and put it and keep it on you. And then as David walks through the psalm, he remembers his sin. And I think we don't do this as well as Christians because we like the grace Right? We like the grace. God forgives us our sins. I feel great about it. 
And we don't pause enough to lament our sin. And what David is asking us to do or modeling for us isn't to let your life still be defined by sin. All of us in this room are better than the worst thing we've done. And if we're honest, we're probably worse than the best thing we've done. But all of us in this room have sinned and fell short. But what David says here, it's important for us to remember how frail we are, how weak we are, and what we've done. Because if we keep it in mind, it'll remind us of God's grace, God's goodness, God's mercy, God's compassion, and God's love. But it also motivate us to not fall again. And so David says, I have rebelled against you, God. I know you're right. I know you're just. I know you're the judge. I know that it seems like just born into this world, I was born sinful. But I thank you that you've never left me. That you desire to teach me faithfulness and wisdom. And David is going to rely on God. To not only, so it's interesting here because David is asking God not to remember his sin. But David is saying, I want to remember my sin so I don't sin anymore. But I'm going to rely on God. And David says something that's very interesting here. He asked God to cleanse him with hyssop. I thought that was interesting because I don't grow hyssop myself. I don't know if you grow hyssop on weekends. I do not grow hyssop. But what's fascinating about the hyssop that David is talking about is this is the same hyssop if you go back to Egypt and you go back to the night of the Passover and you go back to Israel's deliverance. This is the same hyssop that was dipped in blood and put over the post. And I think David is thinking back to Israel's greatest deliverance to say that, God, I know that ultimately you desire to save us all. So I want you to cleanse me like you delivered me that night. And I don't think it's too big of a jump when we as Christians say, God, I know I've fallen short. And I may not have his up from my doorway, but I have the cross of Jesus Christ. And I want to go back to the cross because that's where you delivered me. That's where you set me free. And so David is not only trusting to God to forgive him, but he's saying, God, I'm going to look in the past of how you've delivered all of us. And I think we can do the same. Because if you've done something that you feel like God can never forgive, go back to Calvary's tree. Go back to the cross and recognize that God has sent his son to deliver you and this world. For years now, I've been talking about how David says, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Now, humbling it is that we as Christians have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. But I think I've got it wrong. Because David isn't just simply saying, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. David is reminding himself that when we sin, it's usually about us. But praise God that the Spirit is still with us. And it's not because the Spirit desires to be with us when we sin. It's because the Spirit desires to heal us and to carry us and to remind us that despite our sin, God is with us. Despite us taking steps in the wrong direction, God is not just hoping we turn the car around. God is guiding us. In spite of us falling short, I think this is also helpful for those of us in this room who we think about sin. It's not just what we've done. but it's also what's been done to us. It's also what's been done to us. And when we think about that, I think it's helpful to be reminded that in that dark, dark hour, in that impossible minute, God was still with you, just like he is now. So it's not about taking the Holy Spirit away from us, but it's by reminding ourselves that even in the darkest of moments, our God promises his presence for us. Even in the darkest of moments, the lowest of lows, 
what we've done or even what's been done to us, God promises to be with us. So Emmanuel isn't just a Christmas time thing. It's an everyday thing that God is with us. And then David makes a shift. He asks God to bring back his joy and gladness. He asks God to forgive him, to give him a right and royal spirit. He asks God, to, who's always promised to be with him, to just be present. And I think the difference here is David knows that God is with him even at the lowest of lows. But sometimes we just need to feel his presence. It's not enough to know he's with us. Sometimes we need to see he's with us, feel he's with us, know he's with us. And so David says, God, I know you are with me, but can I just feel a little bit of your touch? Can I feel your embrace? Can I feel your love and compassion in this moment? And then as he gets through all of this, David says, I'm going to tell my story because I want others who've turned away to come back to you. What a testimony. That he's not defined by the worst thing that he's done that he goes through consequences for his sin, that he's broken before God, that he's vulnerable, that he's honest. But as he turns around, he recognizes that my work isn't to uplift my sin, but it is to uplift my God. My work isn't just to say, thank God you forgave me, but to tell everyone that God has forgiven me, that my job is to tell my story, because in the telling of my story, others might hear, they might see, they might come back to God. That's why we tell our stories. Not to glorify who we've been or what we've done, but to say, this is who I am now. Praise God. This is what I'm doing now. Praise God. This is who God has transformed. Praise God. So he tells his story to bring others back to God. He sings songs of praise about his deliverance. And then, I said a couple weeks ago, David says, I will not give my God that which cost me nothing, right? About how Aaron and the Jebusite wanted to just give him the temple and give him the altar and give him the land that the temple would be built on. And David says, I will not give my God that which cost me nothing. And in that story, David bought the land. He bought the altar. But in this story, David realizes it's not about the altar it is not about the land. It's not about the temple. It's not about the animal and the sacrifices. It's about him. That ultimately, what God wants is you. And he recognizes that what we go through for worship, whether it's ritual, whether it's prayer, all of that's good. But ultimately, God wants you. And so David says, I have to be willing to come before you, repenting, contrite, broken. Because my desire is for your full repentance and redemption. And my desire is to worship God. And so David goes through this whole story arc. And he lands at the point where we all need to land. That ultimately what God wants is you. And why God has saved you is because God wants not just the best of you or the best for you, but God wants you. And after David recognizes that, he says, now, now I'm ready to help others worship God. We think about repentance in light of Psalm 51, but also in light of our lives. It's important, and we've talked about this before, to understand this biblical concept of shuv. And just really, really quickly, the idea here is when we sin, we're walking the wrong direction. So it's not just enough to say, I'm walking the wrong direction. You gotta stop, you gotta turn the car around, you gotta drive in the right direction, right? If you're a more visual person, this is how this makes sense for me. If you say, I really wanna go to Philadelphia, which I'm not sure why anyone would say that, but if you say that, I really wanna go to Philadelphia, and then it says, welcome to Pittsburgh, right? It's not enough to say, wow, I'm in Pittsburgh. I'm so sorry I'm in Pittsburgh. I mean, you might be sorry for other reasons, but that's another topic, right? It's not enough for you to just say, I did wrong. I went the wrong way. I ended up in Pittsburgh, right? Like the idea and the biblical idea of repentance is turning the car around, right? Getting back on the turnpike, paying that toll again, and going and going and going and getting to welcome to Philadelphia. Hey! That's where repentance is. 
Because it's important that we acknowledge what we've wrong and fell short, right? It's important that we realize that like, I'm not going the right way, but it's also just as important that we ask God to turn the car around and put us on the right path. Repentance is shuv. But repentance, David teaches us in Psalm 51, is putting ourselves in God's good hands. I know God is Father. I know God is someone who loves us so deeply, who works together for our good, who lives inside of us, who dwells inside of us, who transforms us, who forgives us, who sets us free. And I pray to God you know that God too. Because there's so many of us, especially those of us who grew up in church, that to admit we're wrong or to admit our sin is scary and terrifying. Because we still have this idea that God wants to stomp us that God wants to, to push us down, that God wants us to suffer. But that is not the God we serve. He is the God who forgives us and cleanses us of our sins. He's the God who doesn't hold the past against us, but sets us free from the past. He's the God who redeems us, who reconciles us back to God. He's the God of shalom, who makes it possible for us to have peace with God, peace with others, and yes, even peace with ourselves. Repentance is putting yourself in that God's hands, of knowing that God will deliver and set you free. But repentance is also acknowledging and confessing sin. Right? I'm in Pittsburgh. I'm trying to get to Philadelphia. I have to acknowledge before God what I've done. I have to acknowledge before the people I've harmed what I've done. I have to acknowledge and confess and ask for forgiveness. And I think for most of us, we might hold that, right? It might change on life as we go back and forth. But the one I find a lot of us struggling with is this last one. As repentance is remembering your sin like David remembered his sin as something to remind me of God's grace and mercy and goodness and compassion and love, right? Not as this worst thing I've done that I'm defined by, but like I fell short, oh, I fell short. But praise God for his grace and mercy and love and compassion. And to do that, we must know and remind ourselves. Repentance is saying before God, my sin is what I have done. And it's saying to yourself, my sin is not who I am. Because there's so many of us still under the shackles of sin because we think our sin is who we are or all that we are or all that we ever will be. And we need God to set us free. We need God to deliver us. Because your sin is what you've done, it's not who you are. Who you are is the child of God. Who you are is the one Jesus came for and died for. Who you are is the person the Holy Spirit lives inside of. Who you are is this community of faith that wants to wrap around you and love you. Who you are is who God says you are, not what your sin says you are. Who you are is who God says you are. So before we come up and, and sing this last song and invite the worship team up, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to take a few minutes. And for those of us who are very, very, you know, not contemplative like myself, this is going to be the hardest thing you've done all week because it's going to be quiet and it's going to be maybe awkward. But hopefully it'll be a chance to connect with God a little bit and to do a little bit of work before you and God. And so what we're going to do is we're going to go through those four things, shuv, trust, confession, repentance, and we're going to pray before God. So I'd like to invite you to, to bow your heads if that's comfortable for you, but just to close your eyes. And I want you right now, between you with God, with the power of the Holy Spirit that lives inside of you that's going to take all these thoughts that you're going through, and I want you to think about maybe there's an area in life where you're going the wrong way. Or maybe there's something you've done that's landed you way, way far from the will of God or, or what God is asking for you. And so this first prayer is a prayer of shuv. 
of asking God to turn the bus around, of asking God to forgive you, of saying, Lord, help me to answer this call back to you. Now that we've asked God to help us come back, to turn the car around, to turn the bus around, to shove and to come back and be put on that right step, this next moment I want you to just take some time to place yourself in the capable hands of God, to be reminded that trusting God isn't a scary thing because that God we love is good, he's compassionate, he's merciful, he's forgiving. I want us to take a moment and just say, Lord, I place myself in your capable, good, good hands. So we've asked God to turn the car around, to put us on the right path, to keep us from going in the wrong direction. We're saying, Lord, I have placed ourselves, even our sin, in your capable good hands. But now, Lord, we want to quietly confess to you. We want to name the sin that we've sinned against you. And if there's a person specifically we've sinned against, we want to name that too ask for forgiveness and pledge to go to them and ask for forgiveness too. Lord, we've sinned against you. Now we want to end with some praise. John reminds us that if we're faithful to confess our sins, our God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if you need longer, you can take longer. If you need to remember these four steps, you can go home and do the more work on your own by yourselves this week. But do the prayer of Shuv of asking God to turn you back around and put you on the right path. Say the prayer of trust of saying, God, I'm placing myself in your capable hands. Confess freely before God that you've sinned against him and who you've sinned against and what you've done. But now I want to give us a moment to just praise the Lord that we are forgiven, that we're set free, that we are delivered. And just say thank you in your own way Lord, thank you for delivering me.
Lord, thank you for delivering us. Amen. I'd like to invite the worship team back up. We're going to close with um, a, a very familiar song around these parts. Um, Matt Mars, Lord, I need you. As we sing this song, if there's more work you need to do, I invite you to stay seated and, and stay praying and, and, and keep doing your work with God. Whether you're still stuck on shuv and asking God to call you back or you're, you're, you're fighting and wrestling with what does it mean to trust God capably? Or maybe you're still more confession to do. If you're like me, there's a long list, right? Like there's still more confession to do. Or maybe you just want to sit quietly and give the Lord praise for delivering you. As we sing this song, as usual, we'll also have the pastors, some of the pastors in the room up front. We'd love to pray for you for anything in the service you want to respond to or, or anything you've got going on in life that you just need prayer for. We'd love to pray for you for that too. But as we sing, Lord, I need you, may we be reminded that this God we need is the God of mercy, of goodness, of truth, of compassion, of grace and of love. When you're ready, please join us and let's stand and sing together.
yesterday I was joking with Pastor Carmen. We had um, a Brethren in Christ Atlantic Regional Conference meeting. And she was like, man, I've just been so built up. I was like, it's cool. I got you tomorrow morning. As we wrap this service, as we think about repentance and coming back to God, as we've done maybe some work of turning the bus around or at least pledging to turn the bus around, I want us to be reminded that our God is good, that our God is worthy of praise, that our God doesn't just promise us a forever salvation through Calvary's tree, but an everyday salvation because now is the time, now is the day of salvation. God can meet us even now where we are. But Lord, as we confess, we thank you that you forgive. And Lord, as we praise you, we thank you for delivering. Our Father God, we ask you to please help us to turn back to you to not only pray prayers of Shuv, but to live lives of Shuv, where we turn that bus around. We get back on the right track. We thank you for the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us, that's calling us back to you, that's directing our steps. We thank you for the saints all around us, the fellowship of the people in our lives who love us and who will support us as we turn back around. But Lord, we also pray now that you help us to trust you fully, to throw our lives, our sin, our, ourselves, all of who we are, our hearts and our minds, all in your capable hands because you're the God we trust, and you're the God of deep, deep compassion, the God of great, great mercy, the God of wonderful love, unfailing love, and the God who carries us through. So Lord, we pray that as we confess, we know that you're faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of unrighteousness. David prayed for the, the hyssop to be what cleanses him. Lord, help us to go back to the cross and know of the ultimate sacrifice to set us free from sin, free from the things that so easily entangle us, free from our minds that tries to hold us back even sometimes, free to know that it's not what we've done that defines us, but who you are and who you say we are. So Lord, we praise you for your love and mercy and grace and truth and forgiveness, for turning our lives around, for being there for us. And Lord, this Lenten season, we end with this benediction as always. May what we give up point us to God. May our sacrifice help us remember our Jesus Christ. May our journey be led by the Spirit. And may our surrender be found resting in our God. Amen. God bless you all. Have a good week.